Sprite Castle. Sprite Castle. Sprite Castle. With Rob O'Hare. Sprite Castle. Hello and welcome to Sprite Castle, the show in which I play, discuss, and review Commodore 64 games. My name is Rob Flack O'Hara, and on this episode of Sprite Castle, I will be discussing Impossible Mission, which was suggested as this episode's game by my Patreon supporters. Supporters like Armadon Restel, Damian Frank, and Graham Vebke. If you would like to help pick the next episode's game or just support my podcast, head over to patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara and sign up today. Impossible Mission was published for the Commodore 64 in 1984 by Epix. It is a game for one player that uses joystick controls. Now, if you're new to the podcast, I like to talk a little bit about the companies who publish and developed these games, but I tend to only do that the first time I mention one of those companies. So if you are a fan of the Commodore 64, you probably know just how popular Epix was. And as you could probably guess, I have covered epics many times on this show. In fact, uh, the second episode of Sprite Castle, I covered Winter Games, and two episodes ago, I covered another epics title, Street Sports Basketball. So I believe I've covered epics more times than any other publisher on this show. If you want to hear more about the history of epics, go back all the way to episode number two, uh, and you can hear a little bit about the foundation and the life and death of the company known as Epics. The other thing I do occasionally is talk about a programmer. If I find uh, like a specific person who programmed a game and uh, we're in luck because Impossible Mission was essentially a one-man project and that man is Dennis Caswell. Now, Dennis Caswell went to college for computer science at the University of California at the Berkeley um, campus and also later at the Los Angeles campus. After he graduated college, he began working for StarPath. Now, if you're not familiar with StarPath and the StarPath Supercharger, that was an add-on for the Atari 2600. And Dennis actually wrote three games for the Atari StarPath Supercharger. He wrote Phaser Patrol, Escape from the Mind Master, and Party Mix. Now, StarPath, the company, was acquired by Epix, and so that was how Dennis made his transition from that company and into Epix. There were a couple of other employees, uh, co-workers of Dennis's. That included Steve Randrum, who uh, went on to do summer games for Epix for the Commodore 64. He also worked on Pit Stop uh, and many other titles you've probably heard on. And also Scott Nelson. Scott Nelson was responsible for the Epix fast load cartridge. So Epix really hit the gold mine when they acquired uh, StarPath and got these employees. Uh, now, Dennis Caswell worked for Epix for several years before leaving. He worked for several other software developers, including... 
learning company Activision, Sega, and developing for the 3DO. He has uh, several programming credits. He did the not the racing part of Pit Stop 2, but the actual Pit Stop. He programmed the Pit Stop portion of uh, Pit Stop 2. He worked on Rider Rabbit for the Apple II, which was a sequel to Reader Rabbit. If you're into Apple II education software, you're probably very familiar with that. Uh, he was the lead programmer for uh, Ultimate Air Combat for the uh, Nintendo, and he also designed Battle Bugs, which is a game that a lot of DOS gamers from the mid-90s are familiar with. So Dennis Caswell, great programmer, and we will be talking about Dennis and some of his programming efforts on this game throughout the show. Impossible Mission is an action platform game combined with a puzzle game where players control secret agent 4125, who has infiltrated the secret base of the evil professor Elvin Adambender and must search each room of the professor's lair for pieces of a puzzle while avoiding aggressive robots, a roving ball, and deadly traps. The name Impossible Mission is obviously a play on the old spot television show Mission Impossible. Uh, it was seen as a spy-related type game, and uh, they couldn't get the rights, didn't want to get the rights to Mission Impossible, and so they just reversed the words and came up with Impossible Mission. That's literally where the title of the game comes from. Dennis Caswell said he got the idea for this game after watching War Games. And as we dig a little bit into the manual, you will see that this game actually has a lot more in common with War Games than it does with the old TV show Mission Impossible. The box artwork and manual do a great job of setting the scene for this game. Now, I've said this in previous episodes, but a lot of times... Not everything could go into a game. It had to be put in the manual. You couldn't put an entire backstory into a game. Sometimes a game, the graphics were simplistic and only slightly resembled something that the programmer had in mind. And so a lot of the information and uh, a lot of the depth of the game was actually put into manuals, especially on these early 1980s style games. And that's uh, definitely the case here in Impossible Mission. Now, on the front of the box, we see the words Impossible Mission, and they are written in a stencil-type font that reminds us immediately, it makes me think of a military operation. Uh, I liken this to the font that we sometimes see in movies written on secret crates or on secret envelopes that might say Top Secret on them. So it really, just by, by picking a specific font, it really kind of sets... Uh, the scene a little bit for this game. There are also pictures on the front of the box of the secret agent and of Professor Adam Bender, but they're not, um, you know, pictures per se. They're outlines. There's also an outline of a nuclear cloud that kind of paints this picture of possibly a you know nuclear attack or a war. And they're all done in this orange and blue neon style that outlines all the pictures. Of course, it's on a black background. This is not the only Epic's title that used this style of artwork. It was a very stylized, artistic uh, you know, way to show what was going to be in the game. But I think it really works here because it just kind of sets this 
Um, again, you know, with the picture of the bomb and the picture of the, the two people head to head, it just kind of sets the stage, uh, for what's going to be coming up. Now on the back of the box, we actually get some information about the game and we do get two screenshots from the game. Now this is yet another game that uses screenshots from the Commodore 64 version of the game. So Apple two owners who also bought the game might have been a little surprised to discover that their version of impossible mission doesn't look quite as good as this version. Again, it begins up at the top. It says Impossible Mission in those stenciled, red stenciled letters. And underneath it says Designed by Dennis Caswell. You'll notice throughout the presentation and packaging in this game, Dennis Caswell's name is the only name that appears. And again, we talked about that. He designed the game. He coded it. He did every single part of this game all by himself, uh, except for some of the sound effects. We'll get to that. Uh, here's the text as it appears on the rear of the box. Impossible. It's been a long time since the agency stamped a mission that way. Back then, agents had numbers like 006 and 007. But the agency has never faced a foe like the fiendishly clever Elvin. Until now. Your mission, Agent 4125... We've lost an agent or two since 007, is to foil Elvin's horrible plot. From his underground laboratory, the nefarious scientist is holding the world's population hostage under the threat of nuclear annihilation. You must penetrate the rooms and tunnels of the stronghold, avoid his human-seeking robots, and search for the piece of his security code. Somersault over the robots or use a precious snooze code to deactivate them long enough to search each room. As you find code pieces, the agency's computer will help you unscramble the passwords, or you could try to solve them yourself. You've got to reach Elvin's control center, but you better watch your step. They didn't stamp this impossible for nothing. I guess I should read that as, they didn't stamp this impossible for nothing. <laughs> that would be a better way to say that. Anyway, you've got two pictures uh, of different parts of the game. Uh, one is in a room, one of the platform rooms. The other picture is of Agent 4125 running in the elevator. And that's really the two scenes that we see throughout the game. So it's it's nice, I mean, that they show pretty much everything that's in the game. There's a short bullet list underneath those graphics that says, 32 rooms with 90 different robots for never-ending challenge. Computer-assisted puzzle solving, over 240 different variations. Room configuration and robot defenses change in each game. Voice synthesis for added realism. And it says joystick for controlled. Oh, no, it says joystick controlled, not joystick for controlled. Uh, and one player. So... Uh, that tells us a lot of stuff, but and one of the things that's important to remember is that on the back of these games, there were so many games like, if you think about Pac-Man or, or simple arcade style games that would have been ported to the Commodore 64, simple games that were released uh, to the Commodore 64 or to any home computer. One thing was that the kids that played these games were usually not the ones paying the money, <laughs> that people paying the money were mom and dad. So the kids would say, oh, I really want Pac-Man, you know, and they would try to talk their parents into buying Pac-Man for them. But then the parents would say, well, you had Donkey Kong and you got tired of it. 
and there wasn't that much to it. Once you saw the levels, you got bored with it. You know, you're going to get bored of Pac-Man. So there had to be things on the back of these boxes to try to convince mom and dad, as well as the kids. It's almost like it's not marketing material from Epic's to kids in a way it is, but in a way it is marketing material that has been provided to kids to use with their parents. <laughs> so when a kid reads this and, and the mom is like, ah, I don't know if you should get this. And he's like, but look, it's got 90 different types of robots. Look, the levels are randomized. I can keep playing it over and over. Every time you play it, it's different. These are things that will get your parents to say, oh, that's a, that's a good thing. You know, maybe little Timmy might not get tired of impossible mission as fast as he got tired of, you know, some other game. So anyway, uh, I, I kind of see those, like I said, as as a twofold information package. It is them explaining things to the kids to get kids excited, but then kids could use that same information to try to convince their parents <laughs> to purchase these games for them as well. The manual to this game is very, very fun. It's very detailed, like a lot of uh, quality manuals from that era, and especially from big companies like Epics or Electronic Arts, it has a lot of information that's not important to the actual game, but does help paint this overall scene of what is going on. Uh, it sets the, uh, um, the tone again for that military, like this is a military mission. I, I, I wrote in my notes, this is an, uh, an absolute gem of a manual. I did not have this manual as a kid. This is a game that I downloaded. Uh, I didn't have an original copy. And I, th I mean, I almost enjoyed going through the manual as much as I enjoyed revisiting this game over the past week. Um, there's a section that talks about the robots. Now, there are killer robots in this game. We all, and they go back and forth and they try to shock you with electricity, you know. Uh, but the manual goes into great detail. Did you know that the robots in this game are 1.57 meters tall? <laughs> that each robot weighs 67 kilograms? That the weapons are high-voltage ionic plasma generators that leverage the robot's 3.14 megajoules of storage power? <laughs> this is stuff that's not important to playing the game, but when you read it, um, it's almost like now when you play it, you you just know more about those robots. You know they're heavy. You know, I mean, this goes into like, um, uh, like how fast they can move. It says that each robot can move one point three mega radians per fortnight. <laughs> what kind of ridiculous measurement is that? This is how far they can move so many mega radions for every two weeks. How far is a mega radion? You know, I mean, most kids probably didn't know how long a fortnight was, but it doesn't matter. You read that and you go, oh man, these are, <laughs> that sounds like a serious number. Uh, so the manual is very fun. And the, um, uh, it, it is presented almost like a dossier at the beginning. It says top secret mission briefing, uh, impossible mission. Do not accept this manual if the seal is broken. Uh, it says agents eyes only, office courier only, you know, all these warnings that make it seem like this is an actual uh, military document, you know, or something intended only for special agents. It does refer to the agent as special agent 4125. That is not something that's mentioned anywhere in the game. And honestly, before going back this week and looking up this stuff, if I ever did know that, I've long forgotten. I, I 
I was just like, oh, it's a secret agent, you know. Actually, we used to think it was Han Solo <laughs> because he's wearing uh, – the character in this game is wearing black pants and what looks like a black vest with white sleeves. So we just always pretended it was uh, uh, Han Solo. But at the beginning, it says – during the past three days, key military computer installations of every major world power have reported security failures. In each case, someone gained access to a primary missile attack. Only one person is capable of computer tampering on this scale, Professor Elvin Adambender. Then it says, quote, we believe that Elvin is working to break the computer's launch codes. When he succeeds, he plans to trigger a missile attack that will destroy the world. Well, this plot is right out of war games. I'm sure uh, anybody that's seen war games, you're like, isn't that what they did in war games? And somebody hacked into, you know, this. I mean, all, the only thing this is missing is the word whopper. <laughs> like if they just said someone hacked into the whopper. Um, but that was exactly what was going on in war games. They were trying to find the, the missile launch codes. And that's what uh, Joshua was, was looking for. So it could launch the missile. So, um, you know, when you read that stuff, you can easily see the influence that War Games has on this game. But without the manual, if you were to tell me that Impossible Mission is based on War Games, I would think you were nuts. There's nothing in the gameplay itself, uh, not really, that resembles something from War Games. So I thought that was really interesting to share. Uh, when the game loads up, we have a loading screen. They're not really a menu screen, uh, but a loading screen. And it says, Epics Presents Impossible Mission. We've got that same stenciled logo. And then it says, by Dennis Caswell. So we get Dennis's name again. And then there's an interesting footnote near the bottom. Speech Synthesis by Electronic Speech Systems. Copyright 1984. In an interview I found online with Dennis Caswell, here's what he had to say about the title screen. Quote, Apart from what is provided from electronic speech systems, the game was conceived, designed, and executed entirely by me. I had no artist or sound guy or whatever. That's why there's no credit screen. The title screen says all there is to say. There were no graphics or sound design tools either. The graphics, for example, were drawn on graph paper and converted into hex strings that were hand-typed into the code. So... That's why, and this isn't, I wouldn't say, uh, of course, Activision was the first company to prominently feature the names of the programmers in games, you know, such and such game by uh, David Crane, you know, that sort of thing. So this does have Dennis Caswell's name, but I would venture, I guess, to say most people either don't notice that fact or wouldn't remember his name. So it's not in big bold letters, but it does appear in the manual. It does appear on the box and it does appear on this title screen, but it's not, uh, I, maybe the, the right way to say it is that there's not a lot of attention drawn to it. It just happens to be right there. So as the game's loading, uh, the game is loading, we get this title screen and then immediately the game starts with one of the most iconic sound samples to ever appear on the Commodore 64. Stay a while. Stay forever. We've got the agent standing in the elevator with that very classic phrase, another visitor, stay a while, stay forever. 
Um, we'll talk a little bit more about the speech, but whenever you hear that phrase, I think everybody knows immediately what game you're about to play. Um, I would say, just to backtrack just for a moment, uh, there is no menu screen. And so uh, sometimes I put in my notes, like, what's notable about the menu screen? And I would say what's notable here is that there is no menu screen. There are no options in this game. There's nothing to choose one or two players. There's nothing to choose joystick or keyboard controls. This game loads, we get a title screen, and then immediately we're hit right in the face with that sound sample and the game has started. At the minute that that sample is done, you can control Agent 4125. Now again, the game starts with uh, the screen of you, the agent, and you're standing in an elevator. So we are already inside the uh, layer of uh, Elvin Adam Bender. So and in the manual, it says, from this point on, we're just going to call him Elvin. So maybe I'll just refer to him as Elvin. Now, you can see it, it appears to be an underground layer because the background looks like crumbled rocks. So it's like underground, like, uh, you know, just like you're, you're going down underneath or you're in a cave, something like that. That's kind of the scene that has been said. And you're in an elevator. Now, the bottom half of the screen of this screen uh, we can see what I when I, I first played this game, I thought it was part of the elevator controls, but that, that's actually our pocket computer, and the pocket computer is critical for winning the game. You will have to be using this uh, computer, and you can only use the computer on the scenes where you're in the elevator portion of the game, not when you're in the rooms and in the platform part of the game. Now, you'll notice at this uh, scene, we've, we've got our controls. We can move left and right. If you're inside the elevator, pushing up and down moves the elevator up and down. You can change, uh, uh, you know, midway. You don't have to go to another floor or another room. You can start going down and then hit up and just go back up. Uh, and also, when you're running left and right, you will see this amazingly fluid animation, uh, the running man animation of the agent. And when you press the button, you will jump, but you won't just jump. You'll do a forward flip. I think a lot of people that first play this game, spend a minute or two just moving the, the character around, running left and right, jumping, doing flips. It is an amazingly fluid animation. It's very, very cool to see on the Commodore 64. But going with that, you also have this sound. There's no other sound in this part of the game. I mean, until you uh, operate the, the pocket computer, but you'll hear the footsteps of the agent. And it sounds like you're running on a metal floor and there's a slight echo, which is exactly what you would expect to hear. If you were in a long metal hallway, uh, it's just so perfect. That's all I can say about it is it's absolutely perfect. If you just run the guy around for a minute, listen to the sound, look at the animation, um, it, it really, you just know this is about to be an awesome game. So 
when you start the game again, you're in this uh, elevator and you will see probably a hallway off to the left or to the right. Uh, usually, I think it's, I th- is it always to the left, I guess, because you kind of start uh, in a path. It doesn't have to be to the left, but it, re- regardless, you'll see a hallway that goes one, uh, either one, either left or right or both ways. If you take the hallway down, you will enter a room. And this is when the game turns into a platform game. You will see a room with multiple platforms. You will see small little elevator lifts. Uh, you will see a bunch of different items, which are things that you can search. You'll also see some computer terminals. And most likely, you will see some enemy robots. You may also encounter one of the roving balls that floats around and tries to uh, kill you by just touching you. It's very ominous. It's almost like the, um, what's it like? It's almost like the monolith from um, 2001. It's just this giant black ball that says nothing, does nothing, and constantly moves towards you. Uh, There are ways to defeat it, but uh, for the most part, enemies are not meant to be defeated in this game and can't be defeated. The robots cannot be defeated. They have to be avoided, and they are patrolling their little platform areas. So, uh, again, we'll get more into the, the... actual game mechanics of the platform rooms. But that's the first thing you're going to see. You'll also notice a very specifically lack of other information on the screen. There is a timer that is running down. There are six hours in game time, but there's no number counting down on the screen. There's nothing that shows you how many lives you have left. Um, There's no information at all on the screen. It is just the game itself. Now in the elevator portion, you can access your pocket computer and get some of that information, but just like, there's no, um, uh, what would you call it? Like a, a HUD, like a heads up display or, you know, there's no on screen, I guess OSD, like a on screen display. There's just no information. There's no score. None of that. It's just the actual game itself. Now, Uh, As I mentioned, the game does have a internal timer. It is six hours. Uh, So you don't have a finite number of men. It's not like you have three lives or five lives, but each time that you die, you lose 10 minutes off of the clock. 10 minutes are deducted from uh, that timer. So there is a, a, a limited amount of times you could die, but it's an awful lot until that timer uh, gets down to zero. Now, in the platform part of the game, the controls are just slightly different. Uh, But again, left and right moves your character left and right. If you are standing on one of the little elevator lifts, up and down will control that elevator lift up and down. And it moves from platform to platform. There are predetermined stops for the elevator lift. You can't, you know, uh, stop it in midsection. You also can't jump off it while it's moving. Um, but the, the new control that you'll have in the rooms is that the, uh, pressing up or forward on the joystick searches things. So again, in these rooms, you will see all sorts of types of furniture. You might see a stereo and some speakers. You might see a potted plant. You might see a couch or a bed, uh, any of those types of things. And those in any object that is in the room could be hiding something. Uh, and so the point of this uh, part of the game is that um, you have to search basically every item that you come across because uh, the ultimate goal 
of this game, I guess we could get into this, is to solve a puzzle. So we are looking for puzzle pieces. The puzzle pieces are hid in and among the objects that are in each room. So the goal of the game is to collect all the puzzle pieces, assemble all of the puzzle pieces into what look like little punch cards. So each punch card is made up of uh, four puzzle pieces. Uh, And once those are solved, it will turn into a letter. And the goal is uh, that the the launch codes are uh, these nine character words. And so each punch code uh, or punch card turns into a letter. So once you have got all the pieces and then you've turned all the pieces into the punch cards, uh, each punch card turns into a letter. And so you have to get all nine letters. So if you do the math, uh, if it takes four puzzle pieces to make a punch card and there's nine characters, that means there's going to be 36. uh, uh, Is it 36 or 32? I thought it was I wrote down 32, but the math would make me think it's 36. <laughs> but regardless, you got to get all these puzzle pieces uh, and assemble them, you know, into this thing. So um, as you're searching the room, you'll find that some things are faster to search than others. For example, if it's a, a small stereo speaker and you stand in front of it and you hold up on the joystick or press forward on the joystick, it may search it very quickly. But if it's a large bookcase or something like that, it may take a long time uh, to search. Now, this will obviously uh, be complicated by the fact that these robots are patrolling the area and trying to kill you. Uh, Each robot has different programming. So some of the robots don't shoot electricity, and some do. Some stand still. Some don't are just patrol an area and ignore you. They just move left and right. Some will chase you. Some will follow you. There's so many different variations, but they all look identical. So you can't tell what a robot is going to do necessarily until you get on the same platform, get near it, uh, and see how it reacts. So some will just sit there and not try to shoot you until you get close to them. Some will run as fast as they can and attack you. Uh, Some just kind of patrol left and right. They may only shoot at the end of each platform. So again, it's not as simple as just looking and saying, oh, there's a robot. Here's how I'm going to uh, avoid it. And again, avoid is the key. You don't have any weapons in this game. So if you are trying to search, let's say a bookshelf, which, you know, might take, I don't know, 10 or 20 seconds to search, Uh, You may find yourself leaping over a robot multiple times as it runs back and forth, and you can only search for a fraction of a second over and over and over. Now, there are uh, a couple of other things that you might find hidden in these uh, pieces of furniture or things that you're searching that can help you with your mission. There are two specific things, and the first one is a lift reset pass. Now, remember I said in each of these levels there are tiny little elevator lifts. It is possible... Uh, the elevator lifts stay where you leave them and they only reset one of two ways. One is whenever you die or two is if you use a lift reset pass. So it is possible to leave rooms in an unwinnable, uh, configuration. For example, just imagine a room with, uh, just a plain room where you're on the ground level and there's one platform really high. 
So let's say you get on the elevator lift and you take the elevator lift all the way to the top platform and then you fall off the platform. Well, now there's no way to get back up there. You can't, uh, because the elevator, you left the lift up at the top. So now there's just a hole in the floor, (laughs) which you can fall through. Um, And uh, so there's no way to get back up there. So to reset that elevator lift and bring it back down, you would have to use an elevator lift pass. Or if you don't have one, you could just jump into the hole (laughs) to your death, lose 10 minutes of game time, but the elevator lift would reset. The other thing that you may find are what are called snooze passes. And these, when you find them, they look like the little robots. It's like a silhouette of the robot, and it has a little, like, ZZZ, like a little uh, balloon, like a sleep balloon. And those will put the robots to sleep for a short amount of time. I want to say it's like 10 to 15 seconds, something like that. Um So again, every room has a computer terminal right by the entrance usually. And so you can go to the computer terminal and press up and you will get this other screen that looks like an old school uh, CRT monitor. It's really cool. It's it's kind of basic graphics, but it really paints this cool picture. Uh, You know, I mean, it looks like an old school monitor. And uh, if you have one of those passes, you can use it. So it's like a code and you can use a robot snooze code or, or an elevator lift, uh, uh, pass, but we're talking about the, uh, snooze, snooze pass. You can use that and then log out. And then when you do that, you'll notice all the robots have stopped moving. They've stopped shooting electricity, uh, and they're just standing still and collision detection has been turned off. So you can run through the robots. Uh, you could stand right where a robot is and search something behind it, but look out because after, uh, the passes, the snooze pass only lasts for a finite amount of time, like 10, 15 seconds. And when it's done, all the robots immediately without warning, go back to functioning. They will immediately begin moving, chasing you, shooting you. Uh, so you have to, you know, if there's a hard area, you need to make sure that you can get to that area quickly and search whatever you're trying to search before the robots wait back up. Um, I guess there are 36 puzzle pieces because there are 32 rooms in the game. Uh, I guess that that's where I got the, the numbers mixed up there. Um, but, uh, again, a lot of these things are randomized. The platforms and the configurations of the rooms are not, um, necessarily random, but where items are hidden or which robots are where, uh, in each room, those things are randomized. So, um, you know, depending on, on the way that, that your particular game has started, it may be a, uh, I was going to say it may be easier than other times, but it's, it's, uh, not easy. It's never easy. <laughs> it could either be hard or it could be an impossible mission. <laughs> I knew I'd work that in somewhere. Um, there are also in this game a couple of code rooms. Uh, there are two in each stronghold. And when you walk into a code room, you will see no robots. It doesn't look like any other room. You'll just see this large uh, checkerboard. And you walk up to the console, press forward on the joystick to activate it. And you will see uh, of the, the giant checkerboard three squares will be activated uh, and it'll be like uh, each one will have a note, a musical note attached to it. Uh, So they will, they will turn over almost, but they will stay turned over. So the three uh, tones, it might go like this. 
do, 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 like high to low, right? Um, so it your instinct is that this game works like Simon, right? That you go, um, that you would repeat, uh, because then you, with the joystick, you can select the same squares. So your instinct is to play it back in the same thing. Do, do, do. But that's not the goal. The goal is to play those back from low to high. So even though, let's say it did boxes one, two, and three, and it went do, 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 your goal would be to play them backwards, three, two, one, to go do, 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 like that, right? When that happens, all the checkerboards will shuffle. You'll see all this stuff. And you will be awarded either a elevator lift pass reset or a robot snooze. So if you need those things, this is a way to earn them. And you might think, uh, well, if you do it once, can you do it a second time? Sure. You can do it a second time. But when you do it a second time, you'll notice instead of three notes, there are four notes. <laughs> and it, it will continue to grow. Five notes, six notes, you know, however many times you can do it. It sounds like it's easy, but by, let's say, the fifth one, the, the notes are on this giant checkerboard, so they are played in random places and in a random order. So by five, you know, it might go, do, 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 like that, and then you go, oh, which one of those notes is the lowest, and where was it? <laughs> now, I will say this. You could kind of do this forever. Like on the the one, the, the example where I said there were three notes that went do, 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 like that. If you played note number two and then three, and then you're like, no, I think it's two, and then I think it's one, it will work. So you could just keep clicking on them, and there are only so many combinations when there's three. Um, but if you know how to do factorials... <laughs> I mean, once there's five, it's five times four times three times two, right? So there's a lot of combinations. So you're not really going to brute force this part of the game. Um, a lot of people, if you if you grew up like I did as a kid, you were probably confused by this. All of us grew up as a kid like I did. Uh, what I meant was if you grew up as a kid who downloaded this game and didn't have the manual like I did, you were probably confused by this room because uh, we all grew up playing Simon. Right. And so the, if it plays notes three, two, one, we think we should repeat and say three, two, one, but that's not the game that's being played here. So, um, it's kind of devilishly creative in a way because, uh, first of all, there's so many, you know, I, I mean, on, on, uh, just for the SID chip, it's not just the eight notes. It could be different octaves. So there's a lot of range where it could be playing these different notes, but more than that, um, it's a thing where you're rewarded having read the manual. If you've read the manual, you know what you're supposed to do. If you haven't read the manual, um, not only do you not really know how to play the game, but you know you could when you do the uh, three note version, there's a chance that you could guess it. You know, I mean, there's what six combinations, so there's a chance that you could guess the right order, but it doesn't tell you what you won. It does. There's nothing. There's you don't you don't understand what the point of it is or how to play it. So other than that. <laughs> It makes total sense. So uh, anyway, you will uh, encounter those rooms if you play this game long enough. And um, uh, and those codes can really come in handy when you're playing, especially if you're, um, you know, really trying to beat the game. Because if you're trying to beat the game for real, you have to search every single item that you come across in the game. And every single item could hold a valuable puzzle piece. Well, all the, the puzzle pieces are valuable. They're all needed uh, to win the game. 
So let's talk about these puzzle pieces. When you leave each room and go back to the elevator, if you're running left and right and press the fire button, you will still do that jump flip. But if you stop running and press the button, you'll activate your pocket computer. And that is uh, displayed on the bottom part of the screen. Now, there's a bunch of different buttons down there that are kind of confusing. There's like some arrows, lefty, righty, up and down. There's an off button. There's something that looks like a touchtone modem uh, or a touchtone phone dialing uh, dial pad. Uh, and then there's all these things that look like I thought they were little maps, like little maps of countries or something. But what they are are puzzle pieces. Now, there are um, uh, 36 puzzle pieces. Again, uh they are combined in groups of four, uh, and and the way they're combined is they are overlapped. Um, the easiest way to explain this is just imagine like a square, a perfect square, uh, and you had four pieces, and each of the four pieces had one-fourth of a square colored. Uh, you know what might even be easier? <laughs> it's like a think of the Brady Bunch uh, grid, right? So obviously the the puzzle pieces of this only have four pieces, not nine. But let's say you got you were trying to put together a solid square, and you ended up with nine puzzle pieces, and each one had one square of the Brady Bunch grid blocked out. So to make a complete blacked out square, you would overlay all nine of those things until all of the the whole thing was blocked out, and that would be assembling the puzzle and completing the puzzle. Now. In this game, this sounds easier because there's only four, four parts of each puzzle piece, right? But uh, the puzzle pieces, first of all, look kind of abstract. There's all kinds of jiggly lines and, and different parts and dots that are missing in them. So right off the bat, they look kind of confusing. Second, every piece can be rotated, uh, not not rotated, but flipped horizontally and flipped vertically, so <laughs> imagine a jigsaw puzzle where each piece can be flipped over horizontally or flipped over vertically. So it's very difficult. It's a very 3D thing that you have to do in your head to figure out the way that these pieces are going to overlap. Now, if you play this game a lot, you'll start to figure out which pieces go with which other puzzle pieces, but you have to play this a long time. <sighs> now, in addition to that, each puzzle piece can be green, yellow, or blue. And when I first started playing this, I thought all the green pieces went together to be green pieces and all the blue pieces went together to be, to make blue um, puzzles. But, but that's not true. You also have to change the color of some pieces. So uh, I streamed this game last week and I found two green puzzle pieces that went together. I was so happy. I put that together and then I found one that I thought also fit together, but it wouldn't go, but it was because one was green or the the two I had assembled were green and the third piece was blue. And unfortunately on this part, the three colors that it uses are again, yellow, but then it also uses the light green and the light blue or cyan from the Commodore 64. And to me, that cyan and the light green look very similar on the puzzle pieces. So you may have to um, I, you know, I thought that I had something figured out and it wasn't fitting together, but, um, but that was the reason why. Now there is a little touch tone, uh, dial pad and you can use that 
and call headquarters on your pocket PC. And it will, uh, you can choose different things where uh, you, it'll say like, do I have enough pieces to make a puzzle or do I have enough pieces to assemble, you know, to finish one of the puzzles or, uh, will you reorient them for me? Things like that. Uh, again, the only punishment in this game is time. So it takes time, uh, to use this. In fact, every time you use the modem for help, uh, it takes two minutes off of the clock. Um, but if you just can't figure out what to do with the puzzle pieces and you want them uh, oriented, you know, or if you want to know, hey, do I have enough to solve something? You know, two minutes off the end of this clock timer is, is not the end of the world. So that's an easy way to do that. But so a lot of people uh, as as kids never did this part of the game, which is the essentially the core of the game. Most people that got this as a kid, especially if you didn't have the instructions, ran around from room to room, searched all the stuff, avoided the robots, and that's fun. That's a lot of fun to do. But but to actually win the game, you've got to get into this pocket computer and start assembling these puzzle things. And it's weird because the two parts of the game are very, very different. One is an action platform game where you're running and jumping and searching things and avoiding robots and, and figuring out how to get around on a platform. And the other part is this really slow mental puzzle of moving pieces around and, 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 um, uh, trying to solve this three in your head, this 3d puzzle where pieces can be rotated and flipped. And so it's two parts of a game that you would, that in a way they don't seem to go together, but once you play the game, uh, it's so beautiful because it does tax two different parts of your brain, which you are constantly switching back and forth uh, to try and solve this thing. Uh, let's talk for a minute about the graphics and sound in this game. The very first thing you'll see graphically when this game starts is the agent and the running man sprite. Now, uh, in that interview I found with Dennis Caswell, he says the game's engine, the actual code, spends more time handling the running man animation than anything else. <laughs> that is the number one taxer of the processor of this game. Uh, you have to load all those animation sprites in. It's three different sprites that have been combined to make the character of the running man. And it has to be able to flip left and right uh, immediately. And so, you know, it, it's funny to me that the actual character takes up more processing power than almost anything else happening in the game, but the results are absolutely beautiful. When you, like I said, a lot of people, when you first play this game, you just want the guy to run around and do some flips. Uh, and it's fun to make him jump and, and the animation for, you know, with the guy running is, is just so fluid. And it's amazing to me that uh, it was done at a time when they didn't have animation development tools. He said, again, in that interview, that he drew the guy on graph paper, and then it was programmed in. Uh, the hex codes were just drawn, you know, or, or, or programmed into the game uh, directly in there. So, uh, you know, knowing how it was done makes it even more amazing uh, in in my head. Um, there's also, uh, the graphics of the robots. They are these little detailed guys. They're very, I, I just love the way that they look. They kind of reminded me of, um, I used to say Dalek and now I guess it's Dalek, but, uh, the, or the robots from doctor who, 
Um, but they're just these little robots that zip back and forth. They also shoot their uh, lightning, their little electricity at you, which uh, looks like electricity because it kind of it, it's very um, you know it, it jumps around on the on the graphics of the electricity and disappears a little bit. But part of the reason why it disappears is a technical reason because he was limited on sprites. And so the electricity of the robots is only one sprite that has to be shared for all the robots on the screen at the same time. So if there are two robots shooting electricity and they both look very realistic because it's going like, and it's coming and going, coming and going. But the reason it's coming and going is because it's the same sprite that has to be cycled through all the robots, which is a um, a great technical trick that he was able to pull off. And we're going to talk about a problem that that caused uh, in some versions of the game here in just a few minutes. Now, we can talk a lot about the audio in this game. First of all, there's no music in this game, which I think is less of a, you know, there are lots of games uh, I think of like shoot 'em up type games and and some platform games and things where you expect to hear music in the background, but this game has a different feel. You are you know a secret agent. You're going into this thing, and it kind of sets the atmosphere that there's no music. Now I would say sound wise, I don't think you would want music, uh, or I don't think you could have music based on all the different sounds that are going on. Uh, you know, in the, in the puzzle rooms or in the, the platform rooms. Um, so it, it's kind of a, I don't know. It's one of those things where, uh, you know, <laughs> like the Fox and the grapes, you know, and you go, ah, the grapes are probably sour anyway. Like, I don't feel like music would add anything to this game. I think it would take away from the atmosphere of this game, which is good because it doesn't have any. But what it does have is some amazing sound. I talked about the sound of the footsteps, the echo that's in the hallway as you're running through. When you enter each platform room, there's this weird background kind of sound. It almost sounds like bubbling or computers just talking, like, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, and you will hear that in the background of the rooms. You'll also hear the sound of the robots, whenever they shoot their electrical weapon at you, this zap, um, there, you know, there's a, a specific sound when you get electrocuted, but the one memorable thing about this game, the most memorable thing is obviously the speech synthesis. Now the speech synthesis was not done by Dennis Caswell. It was not done by epics. It was outsourced. Uh, to a company called ESS, the Electronic Speech Synthesis. Um, and so, you know, the game starts, like it starts with this iconic phrase. I already played it, you know, another visitor, right? Um, and and it hits you in the face. <laughs> it's like the very first thing the game does. And you go, what is this? Um, I thing i thought about this and i don't say this lightly i think that this that sound sample and when that screen comes up i think that is an iconic moment that could be compared like on the amiga to the amiga juggler or to the boing ball i think that moment when you hear another visitor stay a while stay forever is so iconic uh in the history of commodore 64 games Many, many, uh, common, not just Commodore, but many Commodore podcasts 
use that in their uh, title music or in their, um, you know, in their introductions. Um, some just retro computing, uh, yeah, you know, uh, podcasts use it. It's just this, uh, ubiquitous, uh, it's just, everybody knows it. And when you hear it, you immediately go, oh yeah, that's a, uh, impossible mission. I mean, it's unmistakable. It's so unique. Uh, and it was in 1984 on a home computer to hear digitized speech so clearly, was mind blowing. It was definitely mind blowing. Um, that is obviously not the only uh, digital speech that appears in the game. Sometimes uh, Elvin will laugh at you uh, when your character, when the agent, secret agent, falls down uh, a gap in the floor. You will hear this long. It's like it's <laughs> a pretty good impersonation of it. Um, sound effect of him falling. Uh, and some rooms you'll walk in and it will say, destroy him, my robots. Now, when Dennis Caswell was connected to the company, to ESS, they asked him what he wanted, what he had in mind. And he said, basically, he wanted something to sound like a British Bond villain. And they said, hey, we've got somebody that works here that sounds like one. <laughs> and so one of the ESS employees provided all the sound samples and then sent them. And essentially they were just added to the game. Uh, so it was not, uh, well, in a way it was an afterthought. It wasn't something that was planned from the very beginning. Uh, it wasn't something that the game was based around. It was something that another company did and was incorporated into the game. Now I have to wonder Without that, would Impossible Mission be as iconic as it is? And I don't think it would be. I think Impossible Mission would be remembered as a really, really good game, but I don't think it would be an iconic game. I mean, it would be a great game. It would be a great game. It would be... I don't think that the the speech doesn't make the game... I don't want to say that. I was going to say it doesn't make the game better. It does add to the game. Uh, it doesn't improve the game play. It doesn't affect the game play, but it makes the game more memorable. It makes it one of the most memorable games to appear on the Commodore 64 platform. Now, ESS, when they provided these sound samples, they did it very, very inexpensively for Epics. And the reason that it was so cheap was because they wanted to use this uh, as kind of a test bed. When people heard this, they were going to be blown away and they were going to come to Epics uh, or to ESS and, and be like, oh, well, I heard this impossible mission. What can you do for my game? But here's the problem, that ESS raised their prices dramatically based on the success of Impossible Mission. And so they raised their prices so much that very few companies ever used them. It's a tragedy because it's such a cool thing. Um, the other... Uh, example from ESS that I think most people, the two that if you listen to the show that you would know, uh, it is used in Activision's Ghostbusters. That is the same company. It's the same technology. And I kind of wonder on both of these examples, if it's not the same person providing the speech. The other one I would say is Beachhead 2, which I've also covered on Sprite Castle. 
Um, and we hear the, you know, the, the medic, ah, those different things like that. It's, it's the same technology. Uh, it was also in a game called Kennedy Approach. If you've ever played that, it's kind of an air traffic, uh, style game. It was a desert fox. So it was used, uh, in, in several different games, but not in as many as you would think. In fact, I think I read that it was only used in like 11 titles and one on the list of games that I saw that ESS technology was used in, I did not see, uh, Barbie, which is an epics title and has speech synthesis. So I don't know who did that um, in Barbie. I didn't have time to research that further, but I, I, I would have I would have thought it would be the same company. But maybe maybe they found a different uh, vendor that wasn't quite as expensive. But the trivia I found said specifically that the only epics products that use speech from ESS were Impossible Mission. And Impossible Mission 2, which recycles the same ones from this game. Uh, Before I get off this topic, I want to mention that there is another set of digitized speech in this game where Elvin says, no, no, no. (laughs) And then you hear a female voice say, mission accomplished. That is played when you beat the game. And the reason most people don't know that is because I'm going to go out on a limb and say very few people beat this game. <laughs> uh, I found a copy that has a cheat code that will jump to the very end, and that's how I was able to see it. But uh, you know, to actually beat the game, I don't think most people have probably done that. You can also find it on YouTube, but uh, most people are very familiar with the sound effect that plays at the beginning of the game and less familiar with the one that plays... <laughs> Once you have beaten the game. Um, Now, in the manual, there are some gameplay strategies that are mentioned. Uh, A few things it says is, and this is a letter from Dennis Caswell. It says, first of all, some rooms are harder than others. So you might want to come back after you have gained some of those passwords, like a a robot snooze password. Uh, It says robots have different behaviors, which if you've played this, you've already figured that out. It also says learn jump distances. You can run and also extend gaps. Now, this is very important in this game. And when I was streaming this game, a lot of people said, I didn't know you could do that or that that's really strange. But there's a thing where when you are running, let's say, uh, you know, you're on a piece of graph paper and you have a block, uh, block number one and block number two. So as you're running from block number one to block number two, uh, there are eight parts of that, eight lines of a sprite. And so let's say, you know, it's like eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. And then once that's done, you are completely in box number two. You won't, if you're running across a gap, you won't fall in that gap until one of two things happen. One is your sprite is completely in box number two, or you stop moving. If you get in box number two and you stop moving, then you'll fall. So let again, I'm kind of using, um, um, you know, use your imagination. But let's say you've got, again, on that graph paper, there's a platform on boxes one and three, and number two is a gap. Uh, and if you jump, you're going to jump too far. You're going to jump over that other platform in grid three. But what you could do is you could get line up to the very end of box number one, and you could run across that gap. You could run across that entire gap number two, and then just stop on number three. A lot of people don't know that. But the other thing you could do is you could start running and you could be halfway across that gap 
of grid box number two, and then you can jump. So there are a lot of jumps in this game that seem impossible. If you go to the very edge of a platform, you may have to jump across a gap that if you jump from the very, very, very edge, you won't make that gap. You can't jump that far. But what you can do is you could run off the end of that platform. Again, not, you know, an entire box of that little grid that we talked about, but maybe half that grid. So you could get your feet in the air and then jump. And you could extend how far you could jump in this game. And you do have to do that to reach certain parts of this game. So, uh, again, that's a little hint that's hidden in the back of the manual, but it is very important. Now, a lot of people, again, if you play this game enough, you probably figure that out on your own, but, um, but, but, uh, it, it is mentioned here. Uh, then at the very end, the last thing it says is, uh, well, that's all you'll get out of me. The rest is up to you. After all, saving the world isn't supposed to be easy. It's kind of a, I don't know, the way it comes off is weird to me. It's like, well, that's all you'll get out of me. Um, the way that it's written is very strange. It's like they sent, like Dennis Caswell sat down and wrote a note and they stuck it in the end of the manual. And it, it kind of breaks the character. I mean, it breaks the the tone of this whole manual. You know, I, I kind of wish it had said like, you know, we've had other agents that have gone in and this is some of the things they found out. And then it would list those things and it would say, the rest is up to you to discover. Uh, there may have been other secrets, but those agents didn't return or something like that. But instead it's just like, well, there you go. That's all I'm going to tell you. Good luck. Have fun playing the game. I don't know. It just the tone of it is different than, than the rest of the manual. So that kind of jumped out at me. Um, my personal additional strategies, I would say, is, um, uh, of course, you have to search everything, right? Uh, snooze passes, if you're really trying to beat the game, snooze passes are going to be your best friend because there are parts of the, the game where you just can't get to platforms and search things because of the robots. Um, also, you just have to get used to this idea of searching things multiple times. So for example, now when you search something all the way and once you're done searching it, it disappears, but something like a bookcase takes a long time to search. So you may, you know, you just have to search, jump over a robot, jump back over a robot, search it again for a second and jump over, jump back, search it again. I mean, you just have to get used to, to doing that. You know, it seems, um, uh, it can be frustrating, like you're spending a lot of time to search something, but you do ultimately have to search everything. And and it's really doesn't um, – you can leave things unsearched, but that's not really a game-winning technique. <laughs> uh, if you are actually trying to win the game and need all the puzzle pieces, then you, you do – ultimately need to search, uh, everything. Uh, again, I mentioned you got to learn your jump distances and see how far you can run uh, to get over those gaps and, and, uh, you know, practice that midair kind of jump because you will need to be able to uh, do that throughout the game. And the only other thing I put on here was, uh, most, not most, but I would say most rooms, uh, or a lot of the rooms, let's say, have an entrance on either side. So there may be an entrance on the, the bottom left of a room and an exit on the top right. Uh, but some rooms are easier to, it may be easier to work from top down than from bottom up, for example. So if you get to a room like that, look and see if there's an exit on the other side. And you might want to circle around once you get over to the next set of elevators and come in from the other side and try to beat the room that way. Uh, the only other thing I would say is that sometimes it's worth it to 
end the agent's life by jumping in a uh, you know in a hole. If you need to reset an elevator or exit a room or jump back to an area where you can't get to, it's not the end of the world if if um, you know you sacrifice a life to do that. But but um, in the elevator on your pocket computer, you can see how much game time is remaining. So um, it's 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 possible to go through those six hours in a hurry, at ten minutes at a time. <laughs> you can do it. Trust me. Um, so let's talk about the score in impossible mission, the scoring. Um, there is no score. First of all, uh, I talked about when the game starts, there's a loading screen and you jump right into the game. Uh, that means it doesn't show you any previous high scores or anything like that. The only way to see the high score screen is at the very end of the game. Uh, it doesn't ever show it at the beginning. Now, uh, Again, there's also no screen shown uh, or no uh, score shown on the screen. So as you're jumping robots or doing anything, uh, well, jumping robots doesn't give you uh, any score anyway. But uh, as you're doing all those things, that's not showing your score either. You're just going to see your score at the end of the game. Um, but the game is keeping track of your score. You get 100 points for each puzzle piece found. You get 500 points for each puzzle that you solve and you get 1000 points for completing the mission. But there's one other thing uh, that's in there and it says there is one point for each second remaining on the clock. Now that's important because uh, if you think about it logically, uh, your score, let's say not, not for somebody that doesn't beat the game, but if you do beat the game, you get a hundred points for each puzzle piece found. Well, if you beat the game, you had to have found all the puzzle pieces. So there's a max number there. You get 500 points for each puzzle solved. You would have had to solve all the puzzles. <laughs> so you get that max score. There's 1,000 points for completing the game. Well, you completed the game, so you got those 1,000 points. So if you beat the game, everybody's score is identical. Everybody got all the puzzle piece found. Everybody got all the puzzles solved. Everybody beat the game. So everybody's score is the same. The only difference at that point in people's score is how much time is left on the clock. So that's where the game's timer comes into play. If you fall down a hole and you lose 10 minutes, uh, you just lost that many points of seconds that were remaining on the clock. If you use the modem over and over and over to try to get help, you're using, you're, you're using time but really, you're also using your points. You're taking away from uh, your overall final score. So if you are trying to play the game and trying to get a high score, that's when the time becomes super important. Because, uh, again, with one, uh, one point for each second remaining, uh, it will add up. A few random trivia facts uh, I found were, or that I, uh, I wanted to mention is a better way to say this, is, uh, first of all, a lot of people, when they see the Running Man animation in this game, they say that's the Epic's Running Man. And the reason they say that is because it, this appeared in Impossible Mission, and then in the exact same year, a little bit later, it appears in Summer Games. So a lot of people think that the animation was created by Epic's and used by Epic's in a lot of their games. Now, what's interesting is Dennis Caswell Number one says he was working on the animation of the running man before he was hired by epics. So this was something he was doing on his own, uh, that he brought to the table. Dennis also says 
he did not work on summer games. <laughs> now, the people that did work on summer games, uh, the, the lead programmer was that Stephen Landrum, who was Dennis Caswell's partner on Starpath and was hired by Epics at the same time. So it seems most likely that Stephen uh, Landrum took, borrowed, whatever, the code from Impossible Mission and used it in summer games. Now, I will say this. Uh, memories are funny. When you're remembering, when you're thinking about something that happened 40 years ago, uh, I mean, I would remember, I think most people remember whether or not they worked on a game, but I don't know if I, if someone said, Hey, can we recycle that code? Uh, and whether you said yes or, or no, uh, whether you would remember that. And so, but Dennis doesn't say that it was stolen or anything, but he just says, I didn't work on summer games. So, um, what's most likely what I, I believe is that because it's an Epics game, Epics owned the code at that point, and then were able to leverage it and recycle it and put it in summer games. So it didn't start out as a quote unquote Epics running man. It's really the impossible mission running man that was recycled and used in some other games. Now, Impossible Mission is not without its bugs, and the most famous bug is not in the Commodore 64 version, but I have to mention it here just because we're talking about Impossible Mission. The most famous Impossible Mission bug appears in the version for the Atari, 26, or not, uh, Atari 7800, uh, and the irony here is that the game is called Impossible Mission, and on the Atari 7800 version, the mission is literally impossible. And the reason is because let's think about those platform levels that I talked about. Uh, map pieces and different things are randomly generated uh, and hidden in different objects. And to search an object, you go stand in front of it and press forward on the joystick. But there's a bug in the 7800 version that sometimes places those items that you need behind one of the computer terminals. Now, when you go to a computer terminal and press up, it doesn't search it. It activates the terminal. That's where you would use one of those snooze passes or a lift reset. So if a map piece, which is required to beat the game, ends up hidden behind one of those computer terminals, you'll never find the map piece, which means you cannot beat the game. Uh, this version was ported by a man named Arthur Cruitt, I believe. And let me tell you, I wrote a blog post about this probably, I don't know, many years ago. Uh, and the name of this blog post was Arthur Cruitt is a hero. And the reason I wrote this was because in 2009, after years of having his name dragged through the mud <laughs> of being the guy responsible for having a cartridge released of a game that was not winnable, he went back and fixed the code. <laughs> the same guy that did the original version went in and fixed the code, and uh, that version has been released and is free, available for download. So, um, you know, I don't know that that writes the wrong. If you were a kid and you spent money on the Atari 7800 version and ended up with a game that was unfixable, or, uh, you know, because it was a cartridge, right? They couldn't, you couldn't fix a cartridge once you had it. It would have been, it would have been a massive recall. They, they just wouldn't have done it. Um, but you know, the guy, 
himself went, fixed the code, and re-released it or whatever. And I think that's really, really cool. So if you are uh, wanting to try the game on the Atari 7800, be sure you get the fixed version so that you can actually beat it. Now, the 7800 was not the only version of Impossible Mission that had bugs in it. And there was a pretty serious bug released initially in Impossible Mission, but not in the U.S. This was noticed by our friends across the pond over in Europe who got Impossible Mission. Now, if you remember me talking about the graphics of the lightning or the electricity that's being shot out of the robots, I said that that graphic or that sprite is being shared between all the different robots. Now, if you're going to share something like that between robots, there's going to have to be a lot of timing involved. And so the code in this timing was based on the US NTSC video format, which would be 30 frames a second. But that code was not changed when the game was uh, ported over to the PAL version and released in uh, the UK. So there's some problem with the timing. And basically what happened was if the robots are on the far left side of the screen and they shoot their electricity, the player dies no matter where they're standing in the game. So you don't have to be anywhere near the robot. You could be on a different platform. You could be very far away. And if they shoot their electricity, you will die. And it's because of uh, the timing was was uh, off because it wasn't fixed for the PAL version of the game. And so, um, and this is one of the problems that you ran into with these old computer games was programmers were using all kinds of different timing tricks and undocumented, you know, opcodes and things like that, where uh, whenever you ported it to something else, it might not work. That's why a lot of games that, you know, worked on the computer don't work on uh, emulators. And of course, emulators have been patched and fixed and updated over the years to where they're nearly perfect. But occasionally you find things a lot of times in demos that don't work on an emulator or don't work on, on things that aren't the original hardware. And so this was an example of that is once it was moved over to, uh, to PAL mode that this code that Dennis had put in there broke. And so the game had to be patched and re-released. So I believe there is a version 1.0 and a version 1.1 uh, for PAL users. So, um, if you're, if you're playing 1.0 and you die mysteriously, <laughs> you might want to get version 1.1. Uh, finally, uh, one final trivia thing is you're trying to, in this game, you're trying to solve these puzzles and put these puzzles together to get nine character words. And, uh, you don't guess the words. The words are revealed to you throughout the game. As you solve the puzzle pieces, you put the puzzle pieces together, you, you solve the puzzle, and you get one of the nine letters. And eventually, if you solve all those things, you get the word. And I remember that um, my friend and I got really close one time, and based on the word uh, that it appeared, I think we figured out that it was going to be swordfish. Um now, Dennis, in this interview, Dennis Caswell did, he said, um, I just put in eight different random words, uh, and I just used the first eight nine-character words that I came up with. Um, and so those words are uh, swordfish, artichoke, asparagus, crocodile, alligator, albatross, butterfly, and cormorant. 
I want to make sure I'm saying that right because of all those words, that's the only one I was not familiar with. That is a uh, a large diving bird that is the, the same, uh, it's in the same family as the pelican. So uh, I just thought that was a really neat trivia fact to be able to, uh, because gosh, if we have the launch codes, we don't have to do all this other stuff. Can we just jump to the end and give the launch, launch code and we could prevent World War Three? That would be great. But I love um, that uh, these were just the first, you know, those were the easy words that he came uh, up with. I love the word uh, artichoke. I, I was not a fan of artichoke uh, dip as a kid, but over the years, uh, I have come to love it. Speaking of artichokes, let's have some snacks. Crack, crack, crack the egg into the bowl. Crack, crack, crack the egg into the bowl. Talking snack. Welcome to Talking Snack. We are here inside the Sprite Castle, and I've invited three of my patrons. We've got John Bodakar Schaller here with us, Scrap Arcade, and Zerfall. And I've invited my three friends here because I have planned an amazing feast for everybody. If you saw these guys' faces, I mean, they are starving. And I just want to tease a little bit of what we've got. I have made, uh, we, we brought in an entire catering staff. We've got slices of delicious meat. We've got mashed potatoes. We've got desserts. We've got fresh bread that's been baking all day. The, the smell of the bread is going all the way through the entire castle. We've got all this great food, and I have hidden it throughout the castle. I've got sandwiches stuffed in couches. I've got gravy in my bookcase. <laughs> I've got dessert crammed inside my lamp. It's all over the place. So you guys grab some plates, go start searching the things in the castle, try to find some food. And while you're doing that, I've got a little bit time to share some Commodore 64 news with you. Uh, the first thing at the top of the news I want to talk about is I adore my 64 film. Now this is a documentary that has been uh, worked on by a man named Jeff Scott. It is an amazing looking Commodore 64 documentary. I believe uh, that the the angle is kind of a North American, kind of an NTSC look at the history of the Commodore 64. Uh, there's a trailer out there for it. There's some footage out there for it. And uh, Jeff is now doing a, I'm going to call it a Kickstarter, even though it's not a Kickstarter. But if I say he's doing a Kickstarter, you know what I mean by that. He's doing a fundraiser to try to put the film over the top, finish everything he needs to do. And it's not on Kickstarter. It's on a side, a site called seed and spark. And so if you go to seed and forward slash fund forward slash, I adore my 64 film and the 64 are the numbers six, four, uh, or if you just go to I adore my 64 film.com, you'll obviously find links to that or just Google that. Um, but, uh, you can go there. There's a lot of different support, uh, platforms. By the way, this is a, um, unsolicited plug of this film. I'm not, you know, this is not a paid, 
uh, uh, advertisement or anything like that. But I'm very excited about this film. I feel like, um, first of all, I've, I've watched on YouTube. Jeff has spoken to some user groups and at some conventions. And his heart is definitely in the right place. This is a guy who grew up with a Commodore 64, just like a lot of us. And he has become a documentarian. So, uh, you know, I think this is he has the right skill set, not only, uh, you know, to put together a great film, a great documentary, but also to have the passion and the uh, admiration of the Commodore 64. So uh, I feel like this is the right guy to tell this story. I'm very excited about it. I've seen lots of other Commodore 64 documentaries in the past, um, and there's many, many good ones out there. But uh, a lot of them, like, when they start talking about, like, oh, you know, if we all had our data sets uh, and we load, loaded things from cassette. That is definitely a part of the Commodore 64 history, but that's not a part of my Commodore 64 history. Not here in the U.S. We all had disk drives, you know. And so the people that he has wrangled in to interview, uh, there's a lot of big, big names. And, and um, you know, I think – uh, it's going to be a, a really good thing. So I think there's like a, a $10 support level where you could get in. And then there's a 25 level. And I think with the 25 is where you get your name in the credits and you get a, um, a digital copy. I think it's a SD, uh, digital copy. And then at the $50 tier is where you get a HD copy, but you also get your name and your credits. Uh, so I did, I have backed it. Um, I'm listed on the backers. I think I'm in the first, 50. So I, I think uh, I'm entered for uh, some sort of drawing or something like that. But um, but I didn't do it for the drawing. I did it because uh, I believe in this film and I want to see the film. So uh, that's my endorsement. Uh, the one uh, elephant in the room, I suppose, that I would discuss about or that I would talk about this, and I'm only going to talk about it briefly, is I have mentioned this documentary to a few people. Some people have gone and seen the trailer. And those people said... Uh, I saw the eight bit guy in the trailer and I wouldn't support this film. I'm not going to support this film because I don't like the eight bit guy. Uh, if you don't know who the eight bit guy is, he is a YouTube personality who, uh, does all sorts of things with retro computers. He, he was a, he was like the go-to guy, uh, for retro. So everybody watched him. He has all kinds of great content. Um, and then he has done a couple of things outside that scope uh, that people didn't agree with. Some political things. He put up some videos, um, you know, just of, of things that uh, people didn't like. And so uh, there is a, a small. And he also did some some things. I think he. Uh, I, I only read about. It, I didn't see it, but but on some of his videos, I think he destroyed some vintage technology instead of you know, handing it off or whatever. And I, I haven't been the, the, um, the, the direct recipient of that, but I've kind of have, <laughs> um, I didn't destroy anything, but I definitely, when I was working on arcade games, you know, I would have people tell me like, well, that's a tragedy. You didn't restore that. You didn't do this. You know, people will definitely tell you, uh, how to do your hobby. And, and I only had a very, very small number of people looking at me, uh, and the way I was doing things. So, uh, yeah, I think if you get old computers, 
uh, and you and you destroy them instead of fixing them or selling them or doing something like that. Uh, you're going to get a lot of people mad at you. And then again, you know, I think there's some political stuff uh, involved, some different things that uh, that really turn some people off of his content for life. People that just say, I, I won't support him, I won't support his shows, and I won't support anything he's involved in. I'm going to say my case. And then I'm just going to let it go and, and and you have to decide for yourself. But this is this is my point of view. And again, this is completely unsolicited. Nobody's asked me to say this. I'm just giving my perspective here. Um I I I tend to think of this as like, you know, if if I wanted to buy a new car, let's say, I wanted to buy a new Ford. There's this new Ford truck that I really like. Uh and and then you find out that one of the guys who worked on the radio, who came up with some part of the radio or something, was not a good person. He later got convicted of, of murder because his neighbors, because the, the, the neighbors uh, would not, uh, they kept going to, they taking their children to the restaurant and they let them use their iPads when somebody's trying to uh, eat breakfast in silence. <laughs> Which I'm going to tell you is something I, I could see myself murdering someone over. <laughs> um, but... But then you got away, uh, and, and that's not even a good example because that person got paid for that. So I don't believe that the eight big guy, uh, you know, receives financial compensation for appearing in this documentary. So it's not like supporting the documentary is giving money to somebody that you don't support, right? Um, so at the end of the day, for me personally, and I'm not saying like, okay, let's say you know. Henry Ford, you know, uh, you know, murdered my grandfather. Well, then I probably wouldn't buy a Ford. <laughs> Maybe I'd buy a Chevy at that point, right? Um, but you know, if if it's just, I don't know. It, to me, I got to look at the bigger picture. What's the bigger picture for me is that I want to see this documentary. I want to see all the other people. So I'm not focused on uh, the one guy that I don't align with politically. Uh, I know that on the very next clip, I saw an interview, uh, pieces of an interview with uh, Robin Harbron, uh, who, if you're in the Commodore 64, also Leif Bloomquist uh, is is right after that. And these are people that, like, to a lot of us in the Commodore 64 scene, those people are like heroes. Like, I watched Robin Harbron he, on his uh, YouTube channel where he found this old game and he goes – well, this is a game I loved as a kid, but there's a bug in it, and I don't know, and I could never beat the game. So, eh, let's just disassemble it and fix the bug so I can play it. You know, I mean, the things he does are incredible. And Robin was involved in the uh, the thirty and one, the DTV, the Commodore sixty four, uh, all in one joystick thing. So these are really good people. You know, uh, Leaf Bloomquist has been involved in so many Commodore 64 projects. These are people that um, are keeping the Commodore alive today, you know. And I think what Jeff Scott is doing with this documentary, he's doing the same thing. I think he's keeping interest in a really old computer, uh, you know, a a 40-year-old machine that some of us still use and play games on and still enjoy. Uh, You know, he's keeping, keeping it alive, you know. So I don't feel like I have to uh, – and again, I, I would say this, and, and I, I thought about saying like there's a certain person or there's this – you know, I'm not beating around the bush. I don't agree with all the things that the 8-bit guy has done, uh, especially outside of 
let's call it a character. Like the eight bit guy, let's say that's a character. Like he does Commodore 64 stuff and he says, Hey, I'm doing this Commodore 64 game or I'm reviewing this Commodore 64 hardware. I don't have a problem with that stuff. I don't love everything he's done outside of that. Like maybe what he does on the weekends or whatever, but I, I just, I can't, I have to overlook that for the greater good of this movie. I want to see the movie. And so just because there's one guy that's featured in it that I don't necessarily love, uh, I, I'm not going to let that stop me from supporting this. I'm not going to let all the, I'm not going to punish all the other people that put their time and hard work into it. And I'm not going to, um, you know, like the, it's such a small, like, it's not like you could go, well, you know what? I'm just going to support the next documentary guy that's making an NTSC Commodore 64 centric documentary that also can interview all these people. And do, like, like, it's kind of like, are you doing this or you're not doing this? Like, and I'm doing this. So, uh, that, that's my piece. I don't know. I, I didn't plan that out and it may sound a little rambly, but I mean, that's kind of my stance on it. No, I don't agree with everything that the eight bit guy, uh, has done. Uh, I, I wouldn't even say I don't agree. I would say I disagree. I disagree with some of the things, some of his decisions, but I don't think it's, if I'll, here's what I'll say, I'll put it this way and then I'll let it go. If, if Jeff Scott was making a eight bit guy documentary, I would probably pass. I don't need to see the eight bit guy documentary, but I don't think this is an eight bit guy documentary. I think this is a Commodore 64 documentary that has him featured as one of the interview people. You know, I've seen so many, uh, remember like get lamp and, 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 um, some of those other documentaries, like maybe I didn't agree with every single person that was interviewed in those documentaries, but I liked the documentary overall. I liked the story. I'm not going to punish this project because there's one guy in it that's featured in it. That's not beneficiary or benefiting financially from the, the sales of the product that I don't agree with. I'm not going to do that. So, uh, if you ask me, uh, if, if you should support this, I'm going to say yes. I think this is a, a good, uh, I, I think, I think the heart's in the right place and I, it's a film that I want to see. So there's my endorsement for I adore my 64 film. I hope it succeeds in its fundraising. And, uh, if it does, I hope you watch it all the way to the very end. If you don't want to watch the eight bit guy, skip that guy, but go to the credits because you're going to see Rob Flack O'Hara as someone who supported and gave $64. Uh, except for now, I just heard there's a, I might be able to win a Blu-ray if I up it to 75. So I might have to go back. I don't want to, mm, maybe I can, uh, add another one. What could I add? There's a 64. Maybe I can add sixteen dollars and seventy cents for a sixteen seventy modem and add that to my <laughs> to my sixty four dollars and make a uh, an even number. So anyway, that's that's what I'm going to say about that. Um, either either way, uh, go check that out uh, and, and watch the clip. I adore my sixty four film dot com will get you and they've got the trailer and stuff on there and uh, go check it out because I think it looks it's going to look really great. Um. All right, change of topics. Uh, I have been uploading lots of old YouTube content. If you go to youtube.com forward slash Rob O'Hara, uh, if you didn't know this way, way, way back when I first started, and actually when I say way back, I've looked at the dates. It's a little over 10 years ago. It was 10 years ago. Uh, I started Sprite Castle as a YouTube 
show. That's what I originally wanted to do. I didn't want to do another audio podcast like You Don't Know Flack. I wanted to do a YouTube show. And so I did about 30 episodes where I uh, – very basic looking. I put the screen up, uh, you know, the, uh, a game, and I put my face, and I talked about the game, and I played games while I talked about them. Uh, if you've watched my Wednesday night streams, and I've got better over years, we learn our brains learn how to multitask when doing certain things. But uh, back then, something that I learned very quickly is that I'm not good at playing video games and talking <laughs> at the same time. Uh, I'm not good at playing video games anyway, but I'm worse at playing video games and talking at the same time. And back then, I was also trying to read from a script, read notes, and play a game, and record, and talk. And so there. Uh, it wasn't a, a final product. I didn't love uh, the way that they turned out, but I did about 30 of them. Those have all been uploaded. So there is a Sprite Castle Plays uh, playlist. Uh, again, if you go to youtube.com forward slash Rob O'Hara and go to playlists and you'll see a Sprite Castle one. But also for my Wednesday night streams where I'm playing different games, uh, I've started chopping those up into the individual games and putting those there as well. So, uh, for example, for this week, I played uh, Impossible Mission. Uh, yeah, Impossible Mission for both the Commodore 64 and the Apple II. So those clips will be available there. So if you want to go take a look at some different Commodore games that I've played and talked about from the streams and stuff, you can find those uh, as well there too. And also, if you would, I'd like for you to go find one video and watch it for 1,100 hours because <laughs> uh, I have 1,100 hours of watch time away from uh, getting my channel monetized. So you have to have a certain amount of uh, followers, which I do. I met that requirement. I think at one point it was a thousand followers. They've dropped it to 500, but I have over a thousand followers, but you have to have 3000 hours of view time. And I think I'm sitting at around 1900 right now. So uh, that's the goal is to um, get that monetized and then see what happens after that. I don't think that I would uh, be able to retire off that money. But what I like about that is that it's a uh, potentially it would be a source of income to pay for things like domains and, and um, podcasty kind of stuff and something that I wouldn't have to rely. Uh, you know, I, I've never set up uh, and I'm not docking anyone who has, uh, but I didn't I you know, I don't have like the buy me a coffee or buy me, you know, I, I've done some of that stuff. I, I tend to go back and forth. I set that stuff up because I see other people do it. Then I feel guilty. So I turn it back off. So the only real thing I have is, is Patreon. And if you are on my Patreon, you know that I try to post lots of extra things. Uh, I give more content, you know, so you're, you're getting something uh, in addition to the shows for um, uh, your, your patronage. And so those people are always greatly appreciated. But I, you know, my, my idea was that if I could get the money from YouTube, then that's less money um, that has to come in to uh, uh, cover other things, you know. Um, domain names, I don't know if this happened everywhere, but all my domain names that used to be $10 a year are now $20 a year. And I've got probably 15 domain names. So it's just like another, just another hit. Everything, everything is, is going up. I remember when you could back a documentary for 50 cents. Now look what's going on. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> That'd be funny though. If you're like, I'm, I'm kickstarting this documentary and I need a quarter. You're like, well, I wouldn't give that guy more than 12 cents. Goodness gracious. Um, anyway, so yeah, the, um, uh, the, yeah, the YouTube, we cover the YouTube. And, and in fact, uh, if you go look on the YouTube under the uh, Sprite Castle thing, you'll see a clip 
uh, of the Atari 2600 Plus. That's something that I did a recent stream talking about the new Atari 2600 Plus. Um, but you know what's not mentioned on there is that Atari AtariAge.com was purchased yesterday by Atari. Um, it's funny that the the press release on uh, from <clears throat> uh, one side, I think Atari. The people at Atari Age said, uh, Al, uh, the owner of Atari Age, says they were purchased by Atari. But if you go read the Atari press release, it says that we've merged with. So there's a slight difference of terminology, whether they were taken over <laughs> or purchased or if they were merged. Uh, but either way, uh, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, Atari Age is one of the oldest uh, retro computer, retro gaming uh forums independently owned forums uh i in the early 2000s i discovered digital press and right after that i discovered atari age and back then there was kind of a rivalry between the two sides i think that's long gone i've been a uh i, I was a, a member of digital press for a long time i was a moderator and then i was an admin and i did a lot of work with them and then that forum kind of uh uh, fizzled out, I guess, but uh, Atari H is still going strong and it is a treasure trove of information. There's so much stuff on Atari H. I don't post on there all the time, but I check it all the time. It, it is a great resource. Uh, and so I hope all that content, all that stuff stays there. I'm there's, there've been some, uh, there's a Q and a thread about the, um, merger slash purchase. Uh, one of the things that says is that the harmony cart is going to remain for sale, I find that hard to believe. I don't know. Well, I guess we'll wait and see. But the Harmony Cart is literally a, a cartridge that works with Atari games that plays downloaded ROMs. That's that's really. I mean, I guess I would say that's the only purpose you could say. Well, it's also for if you're doing development. Okay, yeah, I guess uh, you know <laughs> you you could say that, but that's not, not what anybody's buying it for. Um, so that, that'll that be interesting to see. And, and I saw some posts of people saying, I noticed that the some of the ROM hacks were out of the price guide and maybe some, some other stuff has, has quietly been removed from the site. But I hope that the forums stay up and I hope that all that content, you know, years and years and years uh, of, uh, of content. And now I can add that to my resume. Officially contributed to Atari documentation. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go up and get my resume uh, right now. Uh, all right, let's get through this. Uh, I, I, um, recently I, I signed up for uh, threads threads is, uh, the new social media site that is owned by meta, the same people that own Facebook and the same people that own Instagram. And I have also been posting a lot on Instagram, like two or three times a day, trying to post some, uh, retro content and pictures. So if you're a Instagram person, you can find me there on Commodore. And if you are on threads, come find me. I am Commodore as well there. So I love uh, uh, finding listeners and, and uh, Commodore fans and, and uh, everybody that wants to share content. And, and uh, if you find me, you know, be sure to give me, uh, uh, follow me or whatever. And I, I follow back everybody unless uh, you look like a, a Russian hoochie mama. And then uh, I go, it's going to say... <laughs> No gracias, but I don't believe that's Russian. <laughs> it's going to say yet, <laughs> yet for you. Uh, I did see that uh, this month there's a new update for a new firmware for the Kung Fu Flash cartridge. Version 1.47 has been released. Um, 
This version is important because it allows files on the SD card to be opened as sequential files. So I think before, if you wanted to view sequential files, you probably had to load a, a text editor and then go into things. But now you can do it directly from the Kung Fu Flash itself. I don't often update the firmware on things like that. I think, hey, it works. I'm, I don't need the new features. I'm good, you know. But uh, that's that's definitely something that I would like. I use my Kung Fu Flash mostly on my SX64. So when I have the SX64 out, the Kung Fu Flash is an easy way to, to load and play games on that thing. So um, I'll probably be doing that. I also saw that um, there's a Bill and Ted's game on the Game Boy, the original uh, black and white or, or black and green Game Boy called Bill and Ted's Game Boy Adventure, and that has been ported and released on the Commodore 64. I saw a video of it. I haven't played it personally. Uh, this is a game that I remember seeing on the original Game Boy uh, and, um, uh, I, I just love when, um, you know, I know there were some game and watch games that were converted to the Commodore 64, uh, and, and they, they maintain that, that, uh, aesthetic of the LCD screen. And so this looks just like a Game Boy game, except for it's on the Commodore 64. I think that's a really cool touch. Uh, so if you're looking for something to play, you might want to check that out. And if you're into old handheld consoles, be sure to go check out the latest episode of You Don't Know Flack uh, on, uh, I forgot what, what episode it was, 228, 229, something like that. Um, but I just covered handheld consoles, and I talked about every handheld console uh, all the way from back to the Mattel football that I owned when I was four or five years old, all the way to the Retroid Pocket three plus that I purchased a few months ago. And I featured on a stream not too long ago. So if you like handheld gaming devices. I want to hear about my history with those. Go check out the, the latest episode of you don't know flag. Uh, if you would like a seat here in the Sprite castle dining hall, or would like to help pick what games I'll be reviewing, go visit patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara and sign up there. You could get involved in, Oh, wait a minute. Okay. I see someone found the gravy, but they haven't found the mashed potatoes yet. Hold on. Look, Look in the cuckoo clock. Okay, I got it. These guys are, they're, they're just not finding it. And now what I'm afraid is, uh, I mean, I put the jello uh, underneath the toilet. And so I just, if nobody finds, it's just going to be a mess. I'm going to have to go handle this situation. So uh, let me go get everybody on board for finding the snacks. And let's get back to talking about this episode's game. Now, old video game reviews are a funny thing. It's hard uh, to know if people recognize a classic when it first comes out. Is this a a game that took people time to acquiesce to? Uh, or is it something that people recognized right out of the gate and said, no, this is going to be a classic? Well, let's look at some old reviews of Impossible Mission. Personal Computer Game Magazine gave it 100%. Eurogamer gave it a score of 100. Home Computing Weekly gave it a score of 100. Ace, that is Advanced Computer Entertainment, gave it a score of 100. Computer and Video Games Magazine gave it a 95. Zap gave it a 95. Info gave it a 90. Commodore User gave it a 90. Again, 90 uh, 
when we say and these are all translated into percentages, so they're ninety percent. But really, what the score of these were was nine out of ten. Most of these places just said nine out of ten. Retro Gamer gave it a nine out of ten. The two lowest scores I found were on Tilt, who gave it an eighty-three, and the Good Old Days, which gave it a sixty-seven. Now again, a sixty-seven, which sounds like a high D. Uh, I believe that is uh, four out of six, and uh, the um, 83 is a five out of six. So those are still really good scores. It's just when you convert it to a percentile, it sounds a little bit worse. Uh, I found some online reviews that were a little bit negative of the game. Most of those said that the puzzle portion of the game was too hard, and a lot of them said, I don't understand how to play the puzzle portion. Well, you could translate that and say, I didn't read the manual. <laughs> That's what that means. If you don't understand that, then you haven't read the manual and haven't tried to play the game. So as a kid, I would have said, yeah, this game is too hard. Well, because I downloaded it illegally, and I didn't know how to play it. But now that I've read the manual, uh, at least I have a fighting chance. So I wouldn't call it uh, impossible. I wouldn't call it, uh, I mean, it may be difficult or maybe challenging, but I wouldn't call it uh, an impossible mission. Oh my gosh, I used it twice in the same episode. Um, so I think a lot of reviews unfairly say that the game is difficult because they didn't take the time to read the manual or didn't own the manual. Uh, a few other things I found. Ace, that same magazine, put it on their list of the greatest games of all time. Commodore Force uh, listed the game in their reader's list of top 100 Commodore 64 games. Flux put it in their list of top 100 Commodore 60 or no uh, Flux's list is just the top 100 games of all time. GameStar listed it in their list of 10 best Commodore 64 games. Retro Gamer put it 45th in their list of the best games of all time. They also had a list of platformers, the best platformers of all time and it ranked number 12. On that list, it was also number two in their list of the top 64 games of all time. Happy Computer listed it as the best game of 1985, which is pretty incredible seeing as that it came out in 1984. <laughs> this game got accolades and it deserved it. The game is wonderful. The game is, is a great game. Uh, to play. It might be, if I were referring somebody to the Commodore 64, um, I mean, I don't want to say this, but if I had to give somebody one disc uh, and I got a crack copy, so that wouldn't be the only game on there. I could put about three or four other games on there, but this would go on that disc. If I had one disc to give somebody, this game would be on that disc. Now, Moby Games says that this game was released in 1983. There's some confusion about this. I believe the game was released in 1984. Uh, some of the title screens say 1994, but some of the box information says copyright 1983. So there is a little bit of... Um, gray area, but I believe it was released in 1984. Uh, two versions were released uh, in the beginning, Commodore 64 and Apple II. That was followed by uh, the ZX Spectrum. There's a PC version, the Sharp X1. Uh, those all came out uh, shortly after the original versions. Now, in 1986, 
It was ported to the Amstrad CPC and the BBC Micro. It also appeared on the Electron. That buggy version that we talked about for the Atari 7800 came out in 1988. And in 1990, it was released for the Sega Master System. It also appeared in 2008 on the Wii Virtual Console. Uh, so it, this is a game that has been ported to quite a bit of different systems. Uh, I mentioned earlier in the episode that Commodore 64 30 in one joystick, sometimes called the DTV. Uh, it was included there. It was one of the 30 games that appeared on that system. And if you're a person who has picked up the C64 Mini or the C64 Maxi, as we call it, the full-size uh, Commodore 64, you will know that it is one of the built-in games on that as well. Also included on those, on the, the Mini and the Maxi, is Impossible Mission 2. So there was a sequel to Impossible Mission. It is Impossible Mission 2. It was released in 1988. Uh, it appeared on the C64, uh, then also on the Amiga, the Apple II, the Apple II GS, DOS, uh, Atari ST, and the NES. So uh, it, it, there was, that was the two, the two games, more or less, Impossible Mission and Impossible Mission 2. Now, there was an updated version of Impossible Mission that was released in 2007 that appeared on the Nintendo DS, the PlayStation 2, and the Sony PSP. Uh, it is essentially the same game, except for the, the graphics uh, have been updated. They're much busier, I would say. The backgrounds are busier, so it makes it a little bit more difficult to see what you're supposed to search, in my opinion. Um, but, and all the graphics have been updated. So the character looks a little, um, you know, not quite as blocky. The, the graphics, you know, everything, it's just been updated. Um, and the, the, the voice, the digitized voice is not the same voice. It has been updated as well. So I like those versions, but they're just different enough where, um, you know when something is – it's almost like the Uncanny Valley thing. Like it's its close enough, but then it's different, and it, it, it kind of uh, makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up a little bit. You go, eh, it's not, not, not quite the same. So, uh, But they're still fun games to play if you have those. Uh, it was released on uh, the Nintendo Switch in 2019, and this was, uh, again, the original, but I believe uh, – you know, it's the original style, but it has been remade. And, there, and again, it's uh, kind of like the DS version. It has the, the new sounds uh, and all that stuff. Now, when I was a kid going to calling BBSs and stuff, I remember seeing something called Impossible Mission 3. And there was no Impossible Mission 3. There was no official Impossible Mission 3. Usually whenever you saw that, it was like Impossible Mission 2, but somebody had hacked the title screen or, or uh, changed the wording to try to make it seem like it was a new version of Impossible Mission. But there was no Impossible Mission 3 ever released by Epix. But in 2022, an announcement came out. They, I say they, a group called Icon64, who you may be familiar with if you follow new Commodore 64 game development, mentioned in February of 2022 that they are working on Impossible Mission 3. Now, over the past year and a half, they have released um, some uh, video of the game. You can find that on YouTube. If you just go to YouTube, search for Impossible Mission 3, you'll be able to see some gameplay footage of the game. It looks very, very good. Uh, I'm very excited about it. I, I think, 
I mean, if the lowest hanging fruit is you could take the code from Impossible Mission One and just change the the layouts, uh, maybe you know, add add a couple features, or whatever. But but literally just move things around, and I think people would would be interested in that. But this is an entirely new thing. Um, the graphics look fantastic. It looks really, really cool. I'm very excited. Uh, when that comes out, you can guarantee I will be getting that and playing that uh, for sure. Now, if you want to own the original Impossible Mission for the Commodore 64, it is not a cheap game. Uh, using the advanced search on eBay, I found copies that recently sold for $99, actually $99.99 uh, and $89. And then I found a copy that sold for $25 and I had to take a double look. The ones that are more expensive, the ones that are around a hundred dollars are the floppy disc, big box edition. There are another group that sell for 20 to $25 and those are the cassette version. So if you want a version to play on cassette, you can get a complete copy for the 20, $25 range. If you want a big box version of impossible mission with a floppy disc and the manual, uh, you're going to spend about a hundred dollars. And now let's get into my personal memories of playing Impossible Mission. All right, time travelers, seatbelt fastened, yes, the doorway to the Memories. As children, there are things that we experience, things that we discover that separate us from our parents, things that help us create our own identities. When I was a kid, I listened to the same music that my parents listened to. And I was really lucky actually, because my parents listened to some pretty good music. But like, I remember going to the bowling alley with my mom and there was a country Western jukebox that would play, um, you know, just all these old country type songs. And that's what I listened to because I was a kid. I didn't, you know, I didn't hadn't discovered my own music. Yeah, but there is a time when you discover your own music, you know, by the time I got to the, the early eighties and I was starting to listen to, you know, I mean, if you think about like early break dancing or early rap or, or uh, hair metal, those sorts of things were, those are things that my parents didn't like, but there are things that I liked my generation liked. And it was something that we had that our parents didn't have, you know, and it was just something that that kind of bonded us together as kids uh, as something that, that we can point to from our generation and say, this is, this is our thing. This is ours now. That's different from yours, different from theirs. Um, and, and music is just one example. I mean, there could be television shows. I remember, um, I mean, I, I would say this wasn't the example I, I wrote down, but if you say MTV, like MTV was a thing where every kid all of a sudden knew what MTV was we were all watching MTV, but our parents were not. MTV was our generation. The example I wrote down was you don't know or you can't do that on television. <laughs> Where it was a show that we as kids loved. It starred kids. It featured kids. It was for kids. Uh, my parents didn't love that show, <clears throat> but but I did. And my friends did, you know. Uh, and so you can point to a lot of different things. You can point to, to clothes, you know, or shoes or shirts, you know, those, those sorts of things. But anything that you know, just as a kid that kind of defined us, you know, and, and was something that we could point out and say, this is ours, you know, break dancing is ours. <laughs> These neon shoelaces are ours, that, that, that sort of thing. 
So when I think about my dad's computer, the early computer, uh, I think about the TRS-80 Model 3, right? And the text adventures, because that's what we had, you know, ba- very basic graphic sorts of things. Uh, and and the, even the Apple II, like the Apple II was, uh, kids love the Apple II because that's what we had, but it was also a, an adult, like that's what our teachers wanted us to use, right? That's what, um, uh, you know, I don't know, it just seemed like it was their computer, right? And then when the Commodore 64 came out, it was kind of like that, this is our computer. Uh, and not to say that there weren't adults that used the Commodore 64. There were plenty of adults. But I remember a lot of adults saying, well, that thing just plays games. Like, the only reason you like that is because it plays games. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> of course that's why I like it. Look at these graphics. Look at the sound. Uh, you know, th- this is this is uh, uh, our generation. Like, this is this is what we want. We don't want a spreadsheet. I don't care about VisiCalc when I was 12. I cared about these games, you know? And so I feel like that moment when Impossible Mission loads and it says, another visitor, stay a while, stay forever. And that game, I mean, it comes to life. And the first time you see that, when the first time I saw that as a kid, I was like, this is, this is ours. This is the new technology. And, and, we also, at the time that Impossible Mission came out, we still had our Apple II. And I remember getting Impossible Mission also for the Apple II. And if you want to see that, I did stream that. And you can find that on uh, the YouTube, YouTube uh, forward slash Rob O'Hara. Go to the Sprite Castle plays. And, and I uploaded the footage of the Apple II version of Sprite Castle or of uh, uh, Impossible Mission. <clears throat> and it's not as good. There's no digitized speech. There's uh, only, if you take out black and white, there's only four colors. Um, It doesn't look as good. It doesn't sound as good. It doesn't play as good. It's not as good as the Commodore 64 version. It was like, and it wasn't this um, ethereal um, comparison where you go, well, ours is better and yours isn't, but I, I can't tell you why. I mean, you could sit down and look at this game, a brand new game on two systems and you could go, ours is better. This is, this is, this is ours. This is us, you know? And so for me, I think the Impossible Mission, more so than any game up until that point, Impossible Mission was a game where you could say, this is the best game playing computer out there. Like no, nobody else, none of my friends. You know, we had uh, in 1984, by 1985, um, we, had, we still had the Apple II. We also still had our PC Jr., we also had an XT by then and my Commodore 64. And I could look at them and go, my computer plays games better than all those other computers. My computer is the best <laughs> of all those computers. Now, uh, this is not meant to start flame war. And I'm not saying my computer was the best. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, as a 12-year-old, looking at the games, I could say, this game looks better on this computer than it does on any of the other computers, right? I'm sure somebody that was, uh, I mean, there, there's, I mean, I'm not, I'm not getting into computers versus computers. You, you understand what I'm saying? Uh, is, is that it just looked amazing and it sounded amazing, you know? And so, um, I played impossible mission for years. It's one of those games I played forever. I never beat. 
Uh, my, my friend Andy had Impossible Mission before I had my Commodore 64. And I would go over there and we would play it and we would search the rooms and we would use the elevator things and we would reset the robots. And we had no idea what we were supposed to do with those puzzle pieces. We would press the dialing thing and it sounded like it was calling on a modem and we didn't know if it was really calling somebody or if that was just in the game. We didn't know what was happening. Uh, we we didn't understand the puzzle part. We didn't care because it just looked and sounded so good. And the, and the platform part of the game is so much fun that – uh, it just beating the game wasn't important to us. Playing the game was plenty fine, you know? So, I mean, I would say those are my biggest um, memories. You know, we played it without understanding what the ultimate goal of the game was. So we were never going to beat the game. And then later, when I understood the game, I still didn't beat the game. <laughs> so... um uh, I don't think I've ever beaten this game from without cheating or doing anything like that. You know, just just trying to beat the clock and go from beginning again. I, I don't think I've ever done that. Uh, so so that's not the part. I mean, that's not the rewarding part to me. It's all the other parts. Uh, uh, and, and putting the puzzles together, I mean, that part's more frustrating to me than the the action platform. But it's just uh, there, there's something beautiful, like I said, about marrying these two games. Uh, that could be, you know, if you think about like a puzzle style game, the, the computer part of this game where you're solving the puzzles, that could be a whole game. Like I could see an entire game where you get pieces and you flip them horizontally and vertically and try to put them together, maybe under a time limit or something. So that could be a, a game. And obviously the, the rest of impossible mission could be a game because that's for a long time. We thought that was the game, uh, the platform stuff and the searching. So, um, you know, each, each one of those, uh, could be their own game, but marrying them together, two things that are very different. You know what it made me think of? Um, it made me think of Grand Theft Auto. When I first got Grand Theft Auto 3, and everybody was like, there's all these missions. What you got to do is you got to do this and go here and talk to this guy and take this thing and help in this robbery or whatever. And I go, uh-huh, okay. And then I start the game and I steal the first car and I go, Wow. <laughs> And I go driving and start running over pedestrians and the police would chase me and I'd drive as fast as I can until I ended up in the uh, ocean and I'd come out, I'm not going down cover. And then they'd shoot me and I'd be like, ah, and I end up in the hospital. And then, uh, you know, the game would start over. I'd walk out of the hospital and it's like, okay, your mission is to go talk to Larry. I'd be like, all right, I'm going to go talk to Larry. Then I go, wahoo, I just steal a car and I just go do it all over again. <laughs> So that kind of reminds me of impossible mission. Like there's a whole thing where they're like, listen, you got to get these puzzle pieces. You got to put these puzzles together. You got to solve these things. You got to stop the missile. Then I go, wahoo, I'm just going to go run around and search things and avoid robots. Like I wasn't doing the mission. I was just doing the fun part and that's okay. Uh, and that's okay. Um, a lot of old consoles have their iconic, uh, mascot, or an iconic game. Like if you say Sega Genesis, people will say, oh, Sonic the Hedgehog. You know, that's associated with that. Uh, for the Nintendo or maybe even Super Nintendo, uh, you know, you've got Super Mario Brothers. And definitely for Nintendo, right? You've got Mario. You also have um, Legend of Zelda. Like those are just iconic games, you know. And there's so many games that were released over so many years for the Commodore 64 that it's hard to do that. Uh, it's hard to say, you know, there's this one game that represents 
the Commodore 64. And there's so like if I were making a uh, like what is the one game to play on the Commodore 64, I don't know what that would be. Um, if I were making the top 10 list, Impossible Mission would be on that list. A top 10, I mean, you have to put Pirates on that list. You have to put Maniac Mansion on that list. Defender of the Crown, even though it's not a great game, uh, it's a great experience. You have to put that on there. Um, I think most people put Last Ninja on that, one of the Last Ninja games. I would put Barge Tale on that list. You know, uh, maybe not Barge Tale. Well, I don't know. Barge Tale 1, 2, 3, take your pick. Uh, but I put Impossible Mission on that list. If there's only 10 games, if I were limited to 10 games that I could play on the Commodore 64 or show someone and say, this is what this system could do, uh, I would put that on there. And I'm, I might that might be the first thing I showed someone. I think, um, you know, especially if you consider, I looked through Lemon 64 of some other games that were released in 1984. That's when Adventure Land was ported to the Commodore 64, the early Scott Adams adventure. Uh, that's what was ported in 1984. I mean, there were other games, but Alley Cat, that's a 1984 game. Uh, Popeye is a 1984 game. So, you know, Popeye is a great game. I love Popeye. It's a, a action, you know, it's an arcade port platform game, right? But on the Commodore, if you look at Popeye and then you look at something like Impossible Mission, it's just light years ahead of everything else. So, um, that, I mean, that's my biggest memory is, is not just playing it, uh, because I did play it. I played it for years, but it's more than what the game, the game itself. It's like what the game represents uh, with the graphics and with the sound and what it represented to me was a new generation of computer games. I mean, we went from, you know, pitfall asteroids, space invaders, all that. And then you jump and you get impossible mission. And I, I it's just tough to look back from that point. For graphics, I give Impossible Mission 5 out of 5 robots. I don't think they could be any better for this game. For music, it obviously gets a 0 out of 5. There is no in-game music in the game. But for sound effects, I give it 5 out of 5. You've got background noise. You've got robot noise. You've got the noise of the dialing modem. You have all the sounds, and they're all wonderful. You you have the, the running sound, the echo sound. It's all there, and it's all great. Overall gameplay... I'm giving Impossible Mission 5 out of 5 robots. Impossible Mission is a game that can be enjoyed on many levels. You can play the platform part of the game and really enjoy that. But if you want to dig down and really get to the nitty-gritty nuts and bolts of the game, learn the puzzle solution and figure out how to use the Pocket BC. Uh, And hopefully someday you will also be able to stop the evil Professor Elvin Adam Bender from attacking and launching his missiles. again for tuning into Sprite Castle. If you have feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can email me directly at Rob O'Hara at robohara.com. Join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash robcast. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, or threads at Commodore. Come chat with me on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server or leave a message on the podcast hotline at 405-486-YDKF. 
Impossible Mission was selected as this episode's game by Patreon supporters like John Treholt, Eric Strianisi, and Boar's Head Tavern BBS, which, by the way, is a great Commodore 64 BBS. Be sure to check it out. If you'd like to help pick games to be featured on future episodes of Sprite Castle, read behind-the-scenes blog posts, watch weekly videos, get access to the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server, and receive other additional perks, support Tier Start at just $2 a month. To find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. Sprite Castle is available on all major podcast providers, including the official Amigos podcast feed at anchor.fm forward slash Amigos podcast. More details about Sprite Castle and all my other shows are available at podcast.robohara.com. News and game details for Sprite Castle come from websites such as Commodore News, Indie Retro News, the Commodore Scene Database, Lemon64, and Moby Games. And I want to specifically thank Mayhem64 for the interview they did and posted with Dennis Caswell. That was a treasure trove of information that I used for this episode, and Mayhem64 is not only a huge supporter of the Commodore 64, he is also a heck of a nice guy. So, if you want to see some more information information not only about Impossible Mission but other Commodore 64 software go check out mayhem64.co.uk thanks again for listening now get back to searching your furniture for secret codes and we'll see you here next time on Sprite Castle <laughs>